All right, let's take our Bibles and open them to Galatians chapter 2. And I'd like for you to look at the 11th verse this evening. We've made it past the first 10 verses, and we've come through that long attempt to get through this that winding statement that Paul makes in the first 10 verses. And now we're still in the subject, and we're still talking about the defense of Paul's apostleship. And Paul has to prove that he is an apostle in order to establish that the doctrine that he taught on justification, the way that he taught justification, was the right way. Now, we've seen how that Paul has approached the the proof of his apostleship in the previous lessons. He started out by talking about how he had received direct revelation from God, that the doctrine that he taught was the right doctrine because he had received it directly from Christ, Then he has a second avenue of proof, which has to do with the apostles in Jerusalem, and that's proving that they are one with him in doctrine, that they agreed not only with his doctrine, but that he had also been called as a special apostle to the Gentiles. And so those two parts are extremely necessary because of the Judaizers that came and confused the churches of Galatia and said that Paul was not an apostle, and if he was an apostle, that he was an inferior one, which means that he would have to defer to the decision of the apostles in Jerusalem. So for that reason, Paul just told them briefly a little story there about what happened, uh, an incident that happened some years before this, when these same types of people, the Judaizers, came to the church at Antioch. The Judaizers came there, and they claimed that they had the uh, sanction of the apostles, and they represented their opinions. And so the church at Antioch decided that they would just check the matter out a little further. So they sent Paul and Barnabas and some others to Jerusalem to see, is everybody on the same track? And it was found out that they were. And the apostles commended Paul for his work, and essentially they said, keep up the good work. You're teaching the right doctrine. Now, that is all information for the church at Galatia so they would understand the charges of the Judaizer were false. Uh, Judaizers were false, and and Paul's doctrine of justification is the correct doctrine. Well, we come now to verse number 11, and Paul drives this point home in another way. This time he shows that he is not inferior to the apostles by relating a story about how he had to confront Peter. And this is a significant part of scripture because leader uh, Peter was a leader in the church and we're going to talk about that a little bit later on uh, in another message we'll we'll talk about leadership and and those kinds of things in that lesson but if you look here in, in the 11th verse of Galatians chapter 2 we'll read down to verse number 14 but when Peter was come to Antioch I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed for before that certain came from James he did eat with the Gentiles But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. That means hypocrisy. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of the Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, Why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? This passage is often regarded as one of the strangest and most electrifying portions of Scripture in the Bible. 
Now, obviously, if you're not a student of the church, if you're not a student of the New Testament, if you are not aware of the special significance that the apostles have as the foundation of the church, then this scripture probably wouldn't mean very much to you. But if you know how important the church is, and you do know the authority of the church and the authority of the apostles, these verses actually become a really big deal. Here you have two of the most prominent apostles. In fact, we could say they are the two most prominent apostles in the scriptures. And they're in a serious confrontation. And for some people, this is an issue of infallibility. How do you have one person who is a leader in the church disagreeing with another who is a leader in the church if both of them are apostles that have been chosen by Christ. Now, this is a very serious issue for Roman Catholicism because they believe in the primacy of Peter. And we'll talk about them in another lesson, but it's very serious for them. And so this is a problem because Paul confronted Peter and he backed him down. And the conclusion was that Peter accepted the rebuke, he corrected the problem, and then later on in Peter's epistle, one of Peter's epistles, he refers to uh, Paul as a brother and also that he was an author of the scriptures. Now, some time ago, well, actually, it was just on Sunday night, but I've said this several times, that if you don't like controversy, you won't like Galatians. You, You need to go find another book because there is controversy throughout this. And what we see here is that the modern church is very much unlike the first church at Jerusalem, or these first churches in the first century. Uh, Today, what churches want to do is to end all divisions, and if that means that they have to compromise the faith, uh, then they'll do things like that. But one of the things that we notice about these apostles in the first church, they're not going to compromise the faith. If they perceive that someone is guilty of doing, uh, saying the wrong thing on purpose or by accident, by intent or bad judgment, then they're going to confront it, and they are going to correct it. Now, the idea, again, of the modern church is unity at all costs. And so you can achieve that by compromising your doctrine, by ignoring doctrine, by changing positions, then that will be done because, in their opinion, there is to be no division in the church. Well, of course, there's not supposed to be any division in the church, but the mantra of ecumenicalism, which says that we give up our doctrines and we give up what's right in order not to have divisions, is not what was taking place in the, in the New Testament churches. The basis for unity is doctrine and nothing else. The love of Christ, the, the salvation that we have in Christ, the doctrines that we believe, that is the basis of unity for the church. And so we, we ought to know that very well by now because of our study of 1 John. That was a a very important point of emphasis. So this argument seems to be very odd in light of what we've just learned about the conference in Jerusalem. This is an incident that occurred subsequently to that conference that we discussed in Acts chapter 15. And uh, we know the decision that was handed down by the apostles. And we would not expect that we would see Peter in this kind of position that by his actions he undermines the verdict of that conference, especially when he was played an important part of handing down that decision. Now, the conference had been held in Jerusalem, and now the controversy moves out of Jerusalem. It goes back to the church in Antioch. That's where it started in the beginning. Uh, Antioch was the headquarters of the Apostle Paul where he uh, branched out into his ministry. 
It was the original place that we find this dissension between the Judaizers. And so now it's back to Antioch. The, the council's decision should have settled it, but now the problem comes back to the Antioch church. Now, what the devil is always trying to do is to destroy the true gospel. He's relentless in those attempts. He, he has every tactic imaginable, and when one doesn't work, he just switches and tries another. So this is what we find Satan doing here. He is even able to get to the apostle Peter. Now, I might make mention of this also because uh, it is really important to understand what happened in the early church and uh, how things turned around and switched around. But the Jerusalem church began to decrease in prominence, and that was due to, well, there's a few reasons, but one of them is due to the exodus of people out of Jerusalem because of persecution. Another problem is the pharisaical attitude of Christians that were in Jerusalem. That contributed to it. And when that happened, Antioch became the primary church of, the, of that first century, and the gospel began to go out from there. And as you probably know, Antioch is the place where uh, people, uh, people of God, Christians, were first called Christians. That's what we find in Acts chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. And I'll read this to you. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Now, at that point, the church uh, began to shift, and it eventually became primarily Gentile. The Jews slid into insignificance, where they still remain to this day. And so the Gentiles became uh, became prominent in the church. Now, we do know this, that God has promised that the Jews are going to be restored to a position in God's plan. That will happen when the millennium comes and Jesus establishes his kingdom upon the earth. The Jews will be prominent in that kingdom because the kingdom was promised through, uh, through David that the kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom and Christ will come to set up that kingdom. But here we are still. We're still in the early stages of, of this changeover. Jerusalem is still prominent and they're learning how to deal with the, with the increasing influx of Gentile Christians. Customs were different. Many of the old prejudices still remained. Uh, some of the old things of the law were still being practiced. And so when these two cultures collided, there was strife, and the church had to learn how to deal with that. Now, in the case of the Apostle Paul, his conversion was so dramatic that this was not as much a problem to him because he was thrust into the Gentile uh, society right away, and he began to preach to them, and he was able to um, go along with the customs, as long things that they did, as long as they didn't uh, go against the Word of God. And so he, he didn't impose... Uh, Jewish customs upon the Gentiles. What he mainly was concerned about is that God had crystallized the main doctrine of the Christian church into this issue of justification by faith alone. Now, all of the apostles agreed on that doctrine, but Paul seems to be the one that's the main influence. He, he, he's really the one, it looks like, that kept the perversion of the gospel from happening. So I suppose that we could call him a watchdog for the faith. And so immediately upon seeing anything that was suspicious, he was just ready to pounce on that and to correct it and get back the right doctrine. And I'm not saying here that the apostles were prone to falter because they weren't, but they were human. And just like we're human, when we 
look the wrong way, when we take our eyes off of Christ, then we are prone to fall. And a good example of that is what we're studying right now in the 14th chapter last week and this coming week when Peter walked on the water. Peter was able to walk on the water as long as he kept his focus on Jesus. But when he took his eyes off of that power, then he began to sink. And this is what we find in this passage. We find one of Peter's sinking moments. And that's because he took his eyes off the main objective. He took his eyes off of what what God thinks and placed his opinions in what men think. Now remember, the overall objective of this part of Galatians is to prove that Paul was not inferior to the other apostles. So this is why we have this story. This is why stress is laid on this. And aside from that, though, we, we just find a lot of good doctrine here, and we find insight into the, well, I guess you would call it the very tenuous nature of the relationship between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in the first century. So verse number 11 begins, When Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. What is he to be blamed for? For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. Now the problem here is that Peter's actions undermined the gospel of faith. His actions made him appear to believe something that he didn't really believe, It made him appear that he was not following along in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now, we're going to hold on to that thought because that is going to be so important to us as we continue in the next verses. And as I mentioned last week, I have an entire sermon dedicated just to what does the doctrine of justification by faith mean. But that's going to consume us for a while. So we're going to set that aside for just a moment. And what I want to do tonight is look at this this issue here and see why it's such a hot-button issue with the Pharisaical Jews. So tonight we're going to spend our time discussing the dietary customs of the Jews. Peter withdrew from eating with Gentiles, and this is because he knew that there were some people coming from Jerusalem, and they would frown on that practice. Now I'm going to leave the implications of all that for a little bit later, But for now, we want to look at this, why it is, right or wrong, that these Jews would be upset because Peter sat down and enjoyed his meals with Gentiles. Now, right at the start here, there's there's controversy about what meals is this this talking about. Is it talking about the Lord's Supper? Is it talking about the common meals that people ate? Is it talking about a combination of those two? And I I personally believe that what it's talking about here is the common meals. But we also know that there was a lot of problem in the early churches, especially the Gentile churches, over the Lord's Supper and and how to properly observe the Lord's Supper and the practices that they had there. When we take the Lord's Supper, one of the main places that we go, often I go here, is to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where the Apostle Paul explains what happened on the night that Jesus uh, instituted the Supper. And he deals there in the portion that we normally read with the attitude of the heart, how to approach the Lord's Supper correctly, make sure that we have all of our sins confessed. He he concentrates on those things. And so what we don't often do is read the verses that precede that and see what a problem that the Corinthian church had as they practiced the Lord's Supper. What they had done 
was to turn that supper into a drunken feast. That's one problem. And then they divided along uh, according to their socioeconomic standing. And what you have in the, in the first century is a lot of slaves that were converted to Christianity. But you also had prominent people. You had some higher up. Uh, high society people that were also converted to Christianity. And when the church would eat uh, meet to eat, then they would be divided along those socioeconomic lines. And so sometimes people would get fed. Most of the times the poor people didn't get fed. And so that was a problem. And that type of division had to be guarded against because Christ and the apostles taught that we all stand on equal footing with God. In fact, in this chapter that we're reading here in uh, Galatians 2, uh, Paul said that God accepts no man's person. James said in his epistle that we don't respect people because of or deny a person because of what he wears. Uh, and what he means by that is what he's uh, uh, able to afford to wear to church. We don't make a division in people because of the clothes that they wear, whether they're rich or poor, and, and the way that they dress. Now, I might add to that that we we think that this is important. We think Christian living and living holy lives is a very important thing. We believe that righteous lives, holy lives, is what God expects from us. But what we don't believe is that God loves any Christian less than another because that Christian may have fallen into sin. And we don't believe that some Christians are better than others because they dress in a certain way. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't discipline his children. He loves them. He wants them to enjoy the greatest benefits that he has in, in the joy of their salvation. And so you have to teach people rightly about this. You have to teach them to be righteous in their living. But at the same time, we're not to look down our noses with disgust at somebody ha that hasn't kept our rules. We're to love Christians for better or for worse till death do us part. That's what God expects from us. And so what we do is when we see a Christian that's in error, we try to help them. We try to correct them. We don't condemn them. I mean, our job is to try to get them on the right track so they'll receive God's blessings. So this Corinthian church was guilty of a lack of love based upon the social status. Now, in Antioch, the problem is a little bit different, but they still have a problem of lack of love. Only this time they're not separating on economic lines. They're separating along ethnic lines. And so you don't have Gentiles separating from Gentiles. You have Jews separating from Gentiles. And what that does, it makes it appear that one ethnic group is actually better than another. And so what would make one better than the other? Well, in this case, it's a point of law. It's keeping some sort of a law. And what that does, and this is the thing that really set Paul off, is that feeds back into a perversion of the gospel that we are saved by works instead of saved by our faith. Now, to help us to understand the reasons why that this, the, these straight-laced Jews that came from Jerusalem would be so upset with Peter, we need to take a look a mo at, uh, for a moment at the dietary custom of the Jews. Now, the things that they practiced and they believed were ingrained from the, in them from the time that they were born. Now, first of all, we look at this. The clean versus the unclean diet. The clean versus an unclean diet. A few months ago, I went to my cardiologist, and he recommended that, uh, that I get on what he called, or what I called, rather, the Bill Clinton diet. And he showed me this video of Bill Clinton, and Bill Clinton was um, 
pitching this particular diet that helped him to lose weight, and he was talking about all the virtues about it, of it, and how good that it was. So when that video was over, I looked at my doctor and I said, can I really trust Bill Clinton? No, I didn't touch that chocolate mousse dessert, whatever he says that. Well, this, this is not about that kind of a diet. It doesn't have anything to do with losing weight. This is a diet that was given by God to the Jews that consisted of foods, mainly of meats, that were okay to eat and ones that weren't. So the approved things that they could eat were called the clean, and the unapproved things were the unclean. Now, today we call them kosher and non-kosher, and there are a lot of those, a lot of, a lot of those. Perhaps the, most, the one we're most familiar with would be pork, that the Jews don't eat pork. And that's because pigs were unclean animals. You might say, well, of course they're unclean animals. They live in a pigsty. Well, it doesn't mean that either. Miss Piggy is a very clean pig, but the Jews couldn't eat her or hermit for that matter because they were off limits. So God gave these laws to the Jews, and the purpose of those was to distinguish them from the Gentiles, and it was a way of keeping them from intermingling with the Gentiles because God knew that if they did, it would lead them into idolatry. So he he put down these dietary laws, but there was another very important reason for them, and that's because they were pictures, actually pictures of the heart. God gave them as pictures of the heart, that we need to be clean and pure on the inside, and that was the main thing that was to be taught by that. And uh, maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. I'll explain to you why we're going to do that. But they, the Jews had these clean and unclean things that they could eat. And if you remember when Daniel was deported to uh, Babylon during the captivity, that he was very concerned about what he could eat. In Daniel 1 verse 8 it says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested the prince of eunuchs that he might not defile himself. So Daniel had been deported these hundreds of miles to Babylon, and he stuck to his guns about what was right to eat and what wasn't right to eat. And so he wasn't going to eat what the king ate. And so he was concerned about defiling himself because he would not eat those unclean foods. Well, the Jews had heard this teaching over and over again. They'd heard it, uh, read it in the Old Testament. And they were thinking that what they wanted was they wanted to have as much resolve as Daniel. They wanted to be as virtuous as he was. And so over years and years, they became very concerned and put off by things that the Gentiles ate. So that's part of the problem. When these Jews came from Jerusalem, they would see Peter eating from this mixed table of foods, and they would be upset about it. Peter would eat things that weren't kosher, and so that meant they would go back to Jerusalem and badmouth him. Now, we have another diet of the Jews, and that's what we call the man-made diet. In the time of Jesus, uh, the apostles, or excuse me, the uh, time of Jesus and the apostles, the, the Jews were under the Roman rule. They were a part of the Roman Empire. They had been conquered by the Roman Empire. And so there was a lot of intermingling, a lot of mixture between Jews and Gentiles. And then there were Jews that had been dispersed into Gentile cities, and they set up their synagogues there. But they also, of course, living in Gentile cities, had to have this interaction with Gentile people. And so what they did was, on top of the Old Testament laws, the Jewish rabbis handed down another layer of laws, And these had to do with things that could be handled, how things were to be handled and what you could eat according to that. 
And so one of the things that was an issue was meat that was purchased from Gentiles. So they said, they had a law that said that it was okay to eat or uh, to buy meat from a, from a Gentile if that meat had never been offered in sacrifice to an idol. And then they added another layer to that. They said, well, also, the merchant that handles the meat, he can't have, uh, he's a butcher, he can't have slaughtered pigs and, and cows at the same time. If, he, if he's going to sell meat to the Jews, then he can only handle one kind of meat. He can't handle hamburgers and sausage and then sell the hamburger to the Jews. So they restricted that Gentile to, the, if he was going to sell to them, then he had to handle only meat that was, un, that was the clean meats. Well, another interesting twist of that comes in the Pharisaical interpretation of those laws that the Jews came to the place that they couldn't put their foods into a pot that once had been used to hold unclean Gentile foods. So now you have another layer on top, and now you get into kosher and non-kosher pots and pans and cooking utensils. This this thing just mushroomed out of control. William Hendrickson points out that this may have actually been the true meaning between the conversation of Jesus and the woman at the well That when Jesus asked her to give him a drink, that woman replied, Well, how is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which which am a woman of Samaria? And what she meant was, How can you, a Jew, ask me to give you a drink out of my drinking vessel when the Jews will not drink out of a Samaritan's or a Gentile's drinking vessel? And that might be one of the main issues that was behind that conversation. Well, those were man-made rules. These aren't things that are given by God. But those were also in play at Antioch. And, and it's, just, uh, uh, it, it's not just the violation of the Old Testament laws, but now you have to consider what did the rabbis say? What did the scribes say? What have they been saying for so long? So there's a need to accommodate the unclean and the clean diet and also to accommodate the man-made diet. But that's not all. There's a third diet, and that is the elder's diet. Now, you might not know this, but one way or another, you have been teaching your children the elder's diet since they could uh, first eat and understand you. The elder's diet is found in Matthew 15, and we're, we're, this is kind of a prelude to what we'll talk about when we get to that 15th chapter, and so a little bit of extra information here to get you prepared for that. But in Matthew 15, verses 1 and 2, then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. Now, when you have time to go to Matthew 15, you might want to circle, underline, tradition of the elders. This is another diet, and this one has to do with washing your hands before you eat. Now, we tell our children, I'm sure you told your kids when they were growing up, that they needed to wash their hands before they eat because you didn't want to get sick. They have germs on their hands. But then when they drop their sandwich on the floor because you don't want to throw it away, you invoke the five-second rule. Uh, If it hits the floor and it's less than five seconds, no germs can possibly have come in contact with it. So that's okay. Well, we're not strictly legalists on that like they were, and so the five-second rule can turn into a five-minute rule if we want it to. So... The Jews, though, this is not their purpose. They don't know anything at all about germs. In fact, it's, it's, 
in the 17th century with Leeuwenhoek before anyone ever knew anything about germs. So this has nothing at all to do with germs. You had to wash your hands. One of the reasons is, and I'm going I'm to cover the other reason when we get to Matthew 15, but one of the reasons is that you may have come in contact with something that a Gentile touched. And you didn't know where his hands had been and what kinds of things that he had touched. And if you touched what a Gentile touched and you ate it, then you were defiled, you were unholy, you were unclean, and you had sinned greatly if you ate without washing your hands. Now, obviously, that's an addition to the Old Testament law. And this is why the Jews were so indignant when they saw the disciples eating with unwashed hands. Now, personally... I believe that the Jews had a lot of five-second rules in their system because I know that they, that they might go to a tree and grab off a, a piece of, uh, grab off a fig or something like that or pick one of them off of the ground, and they were not going to go home and go through all the ceremonial washings that they had to go through to make sure that they were undefiled. And there was a particular way they had to do it, too, that they would go through all of that before they would eat. So they're, they're hypocrites, remember, so they, they probably had a lot of five-second rules, and they didn't carry around with them what our kids, you know, the hand sanitizer, or what our grandkids call the hanitizer. They, don't, they didn't carry that around with them. So you have to keep up with all the rules. And so you can see why that it's just better for a Jew to stay away from the Gentiles and not eat with them, just separate and not eat with them. Well, you're still not done because you've got another diet to deal with, and that's the Sabbath diet. Now, today we might call it the Sunday diet, unless you're a Seventh-day Adventist, and maybe you, you call it the Hallelujah diet or something like that. But there were all kinds of restrictions about what you could eat and what you couldn't eat on the Sabbath day. When I was growing up, I think that there was a rule that uh, Baptist preachers could only eat fried chicken on Sundays. And uh, my dad, being a preacher, we were often invited to Sunday dinner, what you call lunch, but we were invited to a Sunday dinner at the, in the, there in the hills of Kentucky at a lot of the farmhouses. And I, I told you this story a long time ago, but I remember uh, how I was suddenly awakened on one of these trips to where dinner actually comes from. My, my family was invited to come to dinner, and we got there, and the dinner was not prepared. They were still in the process, and so they told my friend, who was a, a, a member of that family, and about the same age as I was about that time, eight or nine years old, and they told him and me to go to the barn and get a chicken. And I said, okay, they got a freezer in the barn, so we'll go to the, we'll go to the barn and get a chicken. But when we got there, he, there was no freezer. And so he grabbed a chicken and an axe, and we took that chicken out to a large stump that was in the front yard. And um, he, he, he didn't do, and I didn't know, that you're supposed to tie that chicken down or you're tie his wings. And so he raised that axe and he cut off the chicken's head and that chicken was none too happy about it, so he took off. And so he was flying everywhere and we had to go chase down this headless chicken to have this chicken for, for dinner. I much prefer to go to Safeway and not worry about where that comes from. But they had a Sabbath diet and there are laws that you have to stick to and um, these Pharisaical Jews and Christians as well, Pharisaical Christians, they, they were still looking at all these things that they learned in the time that they were growing up, and those things were just hard to give up. And so we can see why Peter was so afraid of these guys coming from Antioch, and they find him there sitting down with Gentiles, eating with them. 
Now I want you to go to Colossians chapter 2. We're, we're going to keep on here, and I'm going to try to finish up here. You skip two books, Ephesians, Philippians, you get to Colossians. And in this letter, Paul talks about how that Christ has fulfilled all of God's law so that we're not subject any longer to the ceremonial laws. They're, we don't have to worry about the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament. Those have been done away with. And then further, further than that, keeping the laws that have been done away with, if you're doing that to be holy or to be a better Christian, then you are making a very grave mistake because that's not what makes a person holy. So we're breaking into a thought here, but if you look at verse number 10, Colossians 2, and ye are complete in him, that's Christ, which is the head of all principality and power. Now he's telling us there that everything has already been fulfilled in Christ. Salvation is complete in him. Nothing has to be added to it. Remember that. Verse 11, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, we notice there the, the mention of circumcision. And Paul points out that this is not physical circumcision. This is not circumcision done with the hands, the man's hands. But he's really talking about circumcision of the heart, uh, according to Romans 2, verse number 29. And that circumcision is affected by our belief in Christ. Verse number 12. Buried with him in baptism, where, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And all of that is another way of saying that the faith, uh, that faith in the blood of the cross is how we're saved, and that when Christ died, he removed all of these legal impediments that keep us from God. The law was intended to point out our sinfulness and all of these other Old Testament diets and all these things that you tried to do to, to uh, be holy with God, that keeps you from salvation. And if you try to do that, it's going to hinder you rather than help you. Verse 15, And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink, and listen, we're right here in our subject. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. And so he makes it clear to us that all the rules and the regulations are not to be used as judgments on the holiness of Christians. And remember, he says, we are complete in Christ. So you're not better by keeping any kind of a rule, no matter what it is, because you are complete in Jesus Christ. Now, that's why I said at the beginning that when Christians fall into sin and they do the wrong thing, you don't look down your nose at them as if they are less loved by God because they might have fallen into a sin or because they dress or act in a certain way. I've been a Christian for over 50 years now, and did you know that the person that was saved yesterday is as much loved by God as I am loved. And you know why? Because God never looks at anything in me. I am complete in Christ. He looks at what Christ did, not what I do. And so if Christ is perfect, that's what he looks at. So he's not going to love me less. He may chastise me. He may bring some kind of problem into my life to help me correct, be corrected in it. But it's not because he doesn't love me, it's because he does love me. That's the whole purpose of chastisement and why, is he, why he does that. So we're loved in Christ. We're perfect in Christ. 
So I don't care who you are. When you got saved, you, you, it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, how much you've been loved. It's the fact that you are a Christian. That's what makes you loved by God. Now, going back then to Galatians, the truth hadn't hit home. This truth had not hit home to these Jewish Christians. And I think that we can understand that in a, li- a little bit at least because no one stops all their wrong practices and gets rid of all their social mores and all their ethical lapses and their ethnic sensibilities all at one time. It takes a little bit of time to get over those things. We have American Christians that still haven't got over issues of racism. And now we're 229 years into our, uh, 239 years, I guess, into our existence. Well, the Jewish Christians wrestled with these very things. They're in a period of transition, and in one sense, it's to be expected. But we're talking about Peter. We're talking about a leader. We're talking about leadership of the church, and leadership has to quickly fall in line with the truth over these kinds of issues, and we must teach by our actions that things need to change. And do you know why that American Christians still struggle with racism? One of the problems is because their preachers still struggle with it. And you have to be right to lead your people out of those kinds of things. So in this case, folks, Peter believed the truth. Peter knew the truth. The problem is his actions tell a different story. There cannot be a difference between principle and practice. Our practice has to be right because a mixed message becomes a false message. And that's why Paul confronted Peter. Paul was a watchdog for the faith. Now, next time we're going to come back and we're going to talk specifically about what Peter did and all the ramifications of that. And that's going to consume us for, uh, actually, until you get almost to the end of the chapter, well, to the end of the chapter, really, the ramifications, what happens if everybody did what Peter did becomes a huge problem, not only for Christians then, but Christians in the next centuries, Christians now. And folks, if you read Revelation, it's a problem for Christians all the way in to the tribulation period. The very kinds of things that we're talking about right here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to get together tonight to study your word. And Lord, we just pray that you would uh, impress upon our hearts that we need to have no hypocrisy in our life, that we practice the things that we say that we believe, that we act like uh, the people of God, that we know you. And Lord, help us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ as we should. When we see another fall into some kind of an error, we need to confront it, but we need to do it in a loving way, and we need to correct them because we want your blessings to be in their lives. Help us to do those kinds of things in the right way. Thank you, Lord, for your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.